dancers out there know that their art is not effortless, though it may appear so to an unexperienced eye. Suzanne Matthews, a senior in the English department, knows this all too well, and she has set out to reduce some of the pains of dancing. With her minor in arts entrepreneurship, Suzanne has managed to start a company seeking to address issues that have been neglected by dancewear companies. Since dance is an art, we really don't pay attention to the needs of an artist's body, like we do of an athlete, if you think about the athletes who have helmets and pads and braces to help protect their bodies against the strains that they endure, then there's a whole market out there and Nike and Adidas aren't doing anything for dancers. That's just not their market. And so dancers don't have anything to protect their bodies. So what I wanted to do was to create something that's aesthetically pleasing, that could have the properties of a brace, but still look like everyday dancewear. With 14 years of dance experience and numerous injuries to go with it, Sudan knows quite a bit about the needs of dancers. She also gets feedback through outreach to other dancers. I think I can draw a lot from personal experience, but I know that's not all of it. I do talk to a lot of dancers now, and what's changed, and a lot of it has been in their shoes. And I conducted a survey over the summer while I was working in Groundwork Labs, which is over in Durham, just to find out the types of injuries that girls were having and if they would be willing to try something like this. And I got an overwhelming response. When I first had the idea, I had gone to talk to some doctors and chiropractors about where compression helps and exactly what needs to be touched on. And there's just some great research right now about what compression can do for your body, especially in terms of taking away pain. With this in mind, Suzanne sought to solve the problem. I've designed dance tights that look and feel basically the same as what a pair of dance tights you would buy on the market right now would be like. And I've just changed the way that they're knitted in the foot and ankle region. So it adds basically a compressive element that would mimic that of a brace that you would buy on the market. While her unique idea has since taken off and brought her tremendous success, Suzanne confesses that the entire process was kickstarted by a class she was taking here at NC State. I was sitting in a class about arts entrepreneurship, and a project we had was to come up with a business related to the arts that we would be interested in having, or just theoretically to get us through the class. I was the last person to turn in an idea. My professor was emailing me saying, Suzanne, where is your submission? I need to know. And I was just sitting in my house thinking, hmm, my ankles hurt. No, if I could have been protected in dance, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Suzanne went on and dove headfirst into her idea, making a prototype even though her class didn't require it. The professor, Dr. Gary Beckman, just said, if you can get a prototype, you've got something incredible on your hands. And I had never gotten that type of reaction from a professor before. And no, I didn't think I was going to start a business. I came to NC State as a political science major. I switched into English thinking I wanted to go get my master's in publishing. And then this happened. And since then, everything's changed. I wake up thinking about entrepreneurship and what can I do for my business today? I still love English, but it ultimately isn't what I want my career to be. Suzanne's idea has come a long way since her first sketches on a few sheets of paper. It has been a crazy learning process. 
I was 20 when I started this. I had people wanting to sit down over drinks to discuss, you know, my idea. But really, you have to sit down and think about all the things that you're going to need. And even when you make those plans, you learn that nothing ever goes according to plan. That's been the biggest lesson in entrepreneurship I've learned. You really just have to take it step by step, thinking, what do I need to have covered legally? And a lot of times before you have something covered legally, you have to think, is this a viable product? Can it even be created? And that's where the prototyping comes in, which was really important for me. I ended up working with a knitting mill in Randleman, North Carolina, who has done a phenomenal job with my prototypes. And now I have my final product. And I'm working with a packaging company in Ashboro. And so it's all very close and very local. And we're getting art proofs on that. Suzanne has managed to turn her product into a business, which she gave the name Soutenu. Soutenu actually has kind of a double meaning for dancers. In French, it means supported or sustained. And as a dance term, it's just a small, tight turn that's often done in ballet or contemporary dance. So a lot of my dancers out there will see it and know exactly what it is. Soutenu, as a company, as an LLC, is me, and I recently brought on a co-founder, Amanda Akovitz, who I used to dance with when I was younger. But a lot of people are involved with Soutenu. I don't regard Soutenu just to be my entity and something I share with her. Soutenu is my attorneys. I've worked with patent attorneys and corporate attorneys, my manufacturers, my packaging people, my professors, just anybody who's given me advice in the last two years is part of what Soutenu is. And of course, you can't leave out the dancers because they're driving a lot of excitement for this too. The journey from an idea in the classroom to an all-out business is not an easy one, but Suzanne believes that her path is what will help her stand out. I think I bring in a different story to the table in general. Just I'm an English major who ended up in entrepreneurship I have no background in textiles. I work a lot with the people on Centennial Campus. Started with no money in my pocket, and I'm really saying every day that I want to build an empire. And one product isn't enough to change the entire industry. It's only a catalyst. Sutanu's goal is already shifting away from product development towards actually moving it out the door. Right now, we are focused on making our first order, we're going to do a small run just to do a soft launch and get the product out there on some girls. And I really want to be able to keep track of where it goes just to make sure I get the right feedback and make sure that no other changes need to be made. But I've got the product. I've picked out my dye colors. And right now I'm working on the packaging. Of course, I think my big focus here in the next few months is about my channels, about how to get it onto people, which stores do I want to go after. I'll do some online sales as well. And of course, I hope to do some direct sales. So if any girls are out there at dance competitions or conventions, I can hit them up too. Listeners who want to contribute to or help Sutenu should find Sutenu Dancewear. That's S-O-U-T-E-N-U Dancewear on Facebook and Twitter. They can also be emailed at suitenewdance at gmail.com. 
For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Today we have Drew Bridges of the Storytellers Bookstore and author of Family Lost and Found and Stories from the Sunshine Mountain Valley. Your bookstore is located in Wake Forest. Why did you decide to own a bookstore? I was an English major originally in undergrad and then I lost my courage about being able to earn a living as an English major. And so then I um, went back to school and got science stuff and went to medical school. And I practiced psychiatry for 37 years. I always wanted to get back to my English major roots. So what better way to get back to your English major roots than to open a bookstore? All right. So what can you tell me about your book, Family Lost and Found? Family Lost and Found is a, um, was my first novel. Uh, it had been percolating in my mind for many years, and I finally got enough time and motivation to write it in the—I started it about the year 2000, published it in 2006. The book, in some ways, turns the whole concept of dysfunctional families on its head, because the protagonist, John Rant, comes from a very functional family, a very orderly family, one of those families where— Nothing ever, spoil, ever spoils in the refrigerator. The mother pins the socks together so no single sock ever gets lost. She writes the date on eggs so that they can be used in the order that they're bought. So, so John grew up with that kind of very orderly family. Then he went to college and got himself involved in the lives of messy people, people who had messy lives, and he was fascinated by it. He made the mistake of going back home and telling his parents some of his adventures, and they were mortified, horrified, thought he had ruined his life, and there was a great rift. So John got puzzled about, why is my family like this? There must be, and someone told him, every family has secrets, and if you can find those secrets, you can understand your family. So he goes off on a search for family secrets. That drives the action of the book, his search. So I I read a synopsis that had a female race car driver. What inspired that? That was his cousin. See, he he goes, he, he finds out that he has a large extended family that he's never met, that his parents have never introduced him to. One of these was a cousin named Lee, who happened to be in medical school and who happened to drive a 1979 Pontiac Trans Am. They then decide they're going to go to a family reunion. And they are driving around out in the countryside looking for their reunion. They're lost. They're tired. They're angry. She's gunning the car. They come over the hill. And John was just about to ask a question when Lee shrieked, We found it! The reunion! As they came down a small hill, they saw a gathering of about 100 people standing around picnic tables next to a church. Then they saw the sign on the church lawn. 43rd Annual McBaker Reunion. It was a reunion, but it was not their reunion. 
Lee let out with a few choice curse words, describing how hungry she was, how lost they were, pulled out a map. It didn't help. She tossed the map into the back seat and started to spin off down the road again. But then she slammed on the brakes, sending John lurching forward. Okay, we're going back, she said. Back where? John didn't understand at first. Back there, where the food is. Your name is now John McBakery. Is there any sort of nature of the secrets that you can tell us without giving anything away? Like, what are the secrets that, that his family's hiding? There were some incidents with his grandparents where order was lost and the family vowed again never to let things get out of control. What about your other book? The other book is, well, I, th I think you know the, the name of my bookstore is The Storyteller's Bookstore. So it's really as much about, my interest is as much about storytelling as it is about writing, which is different from writing. Storytelling and writing are different things. And the second book is called Stories from the Sunshine Mountain Valley. They are stories that I have written, but they are stories for reading and ready for telling. Uh, they're all original. In the Storytellers Bookstore, we have a story circle. People from the local community, especially, distant away as North Raleigh and Oxford come and we tell stories to each other and practice our stories and make up stories and get feedback. And can I tell you about one of the stories yeah. in the book? Yeah. Okay. Most people know Jack and the Beanstalk. Probably most people know that's not the only Jack tales, that there are lots and lots of Jack tales. Mm -hmm. Jack is a tradition that goes back centuries in Europe and came across the ocean to the Appalachian Mountains and other places. And there are lots and lots and lots of Jack tales. But what not too many people know is that Jack's still out there and he's still having adventures. And there's new Jack tales every day. And this is one of them. And this one is about when Jack decided he needed to go see a psychiatrist. See, Jack knew that he had been alive for hundreds of years and had had many adventures in many countries, but he was still a boy. How could that be? After living hundreds of years, and he's still, it would drive him crazy. So he goes to the old man in the mountain. The old man in the mountain says, hey, it's a modern day. I can't help you. You need a shrink. So Jack goes to see a psychiatrist, and he ends up in the office of Dr. Billy Bob Hicks. So what makes your bookstore so special? I remember seeing some pretty cool pictures about it, but what can you tell me about it that makes it so special? It really is an attempt to be an old-fashioned bookstore. I mean, I, I do have a modern computer ordering system. I do have a barcode scanner and all of that kind of thing. But it's decorated with an old-fashioned barber chair, a spinning wheel, those kinds of things. And I try to choose the books that would appeal to people who don't do everything on their iPhone. And I order books that are classics. I order books that are beautiful. I order books that are somewhat unusual. You can you can order mainstream books from a couple of big wholesaler warehouses and, and get every book in the world. Or there are small independent publishers. Uh, so do you have like local authors? Is it all like local things? I am kind to local authors. If someone wants to have a reading, a signing in the store, to be perfectly honest, most of them end up being friends and family events. They don't draw a huge number of strangers from the general population. But they're, all, they're always nice 
rewarding kinds of experiences. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Uh, anyone who hears this on the radio, if you come to Wake Forest and visit me in the Storyteller's Bookstore, I'll give you 20% off a book. Oh, well, thank you. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. Last time, we introduced Charles Parrish, an NC State student who is a candidate for the Mars One mission that will depart from Earth in 10 years, never to return. We discussed how he became interested in space, how his friends and family are dealing with the possibility of never seeing him again, and his prior experience in a Mars-like environment on Earth. Tonight, we're going to delve deeper into life on Mars. How will they keep peace within the colony? What Charles's role on Mars will be? And how NC State has given him the tools to conduct said role? This is the second part of my interview with Mr. Charles Parrish. Now, let's talk legal system. Are there going to be laws? Is there going to be a legal system? What's going to keep you guys in check? You know, what if someone not, I mean, you seem like a really nice person, but I'm saying like, what if someone just goes crazy? Well, I was watching this interview, it was on Huffington Post Live, and it was it was interviewing these four applicants for Mars, the Mars One mission. And they're a really diverse group of people. There was, and these labels are just the way they identified themselves. So there was this guy who's an astrophysicist, this guy that was like a race car driver, and he was also had a PhD in chemistry or something. Uh, there was this lady who was, she described herself to be a transgender taxi driver. And there was this other guy who was really, he was like the youngest one there that was 26. I think he was about to graduate or did graduate with computer science engineering, I believe. And they were just all talking. And the astrophysicist was asked the question, what's going to happen when you go out into Mars by accident or someone gets mad and just pushes you out there in that atmosphere and he was like well I don't know I guess we'll figure it out when someone dies and we'll just put his body out there will there be something to keep the ethics strong because I feel like that's really unethical even though the person's dead but is there going to be anything to keep like the crazies to not be crazy and someone gets mad they're not just going to push you out of the pod well, uh, there will be 20 to 40 of us training together yeah. for almost 10 years. They will be splitting us up into groups of four when we are actually going to launch. And it will be in teams of people who are very compatible, that there is the least amount of risk for that to occur. Not to say that it can't. There's always that possibility. So we'll have talked through those possibilities and you know drawn up contingency plans for things like that and hopefully we can prevent things like that from happening because just losing one of four people puts a huge damper on the mission and jeopardizes it almost completely because each person has a role right in the mission yes everybody will have their own specialization but in addition to that at least one other person will be trained in the role of another. In case something like that does happen to one of the crew, then somebody could step in and work in that role, or at least as an intermediate. So what would your role be on the Mars One mission? What would they assign you? Still up in the air. I mean, I study bioengineering and permaculture design. Like, I, I'd likely be a mission specialist, uh, either crew biologist or horticulturalist, uh, something along those lines, astrobiologist. So would you take care of the food situation or growing plants on Mars? 
That's my main interest, yes. Some of my past work down at NASA Kennedy Space Center was on that. If that, they said that was your role, to take care of the food, how would you grow food on Mars? There are a few different hypotheses for how we could do that. There are a few things that need to be developed further between now and then in order to make it feasible. But studies have shown very recently out of the Netherlands that some plants can be grown relatively well in some of the Martian regolith simulants. Those are constructed soil samples based on data from the rovers when they've tested the soil for the composition. We've made those up here and then used a bunch of different soil types from both the Mars and lunar samples. We were able to show that plants do grow in Martian soil. Oh, wow. Uh, some plants. Oh, some plants well, That's still pretty well, amazing. It's promising. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, simplifications in a study like that. You're using a simulant that was constructed here, so it might not be necessarily representative of uh, the soil where we will be. There's also potential effects of you know, the radiation causing the plants harm or uh, the lower pressure might need to be accounted for for certain plants. So there are still different aspects that need to be taken into account for growing plants. So while we will be growing in, in some sort of greenhouse, whether it be covered or not uh, by uh, a shield, a radiation shield of Martian regolith, that's still kind of up in the air. It, it might be a mix of hydroponics. It might be a mix of using some of the soil found outside the habitat. And I'm working on a proposal right now for waste to food project. So it would basically take human waste and inedible plant matter. It would digest that and then it would spit out fertilizer that could be used to grow more plants. So it would kind of close that loop in the food production I took ES100 with Dr. Brock, and he talked about, you know, they tried using human waste for fertilizer, and they did it in Michigan or something, but everybody got really sick, and they got rashes on their faces, and they put it in, like, baseball fields and parks, and people were, like, they're just having a bad reaction to it because of all the bad things we eat nowadays. Do you think that would be an issue? Do you think that you, the, I guess, the four people's waste will be, I don't know, healthy? Because I, Do you think the food you'll be eating is, like, better than what we have here? That the fertilizer that's produced will not be harmful to you guys without a doubt because the diets and the exercise regimes will be constructed by nutrition and physical health experts you know here on earth for the duration of the mission likely until we're able to ramp up production on our own but we won't take seeds for things that you know aren't really good for us and a lot of seeds now like we, I mean, I, I know I know that we have a, the government has a seed bank or something, and those are the actual seeds, the or, real like real organic foods. But what we have that's sold just on the market is not organic, and it, even though it says organic, it's actually just I don't know has GMOs or something. And it, is that are you guys gonna get the real seeds like the very first the actual food, or is it gonna be? like whatever that people produce now well there's there's a lot of misconception about what's natural versus unnatural and what's organic versus gmo or or what so there's not much today even that's listed as organic that's really the original and so to say that it's, it's organic isn't doesn't necessarily mean that it's better uh just the same as you know with a gmo crop it 
might not be necessarily better, but that's the idea behind them is to alter them in a way that it could potentially require fewer resources to grow and potentially produce a higher nutrient yield. But a lot of that work is still going on. A lot of that research is relatively new. So it could be a mixture. It likely will be. But that's, I mean, things like that are up in the air. Those are kind of down the line thoughts. So you've had so much experience with your schooling and the internships you've done. Have you learned a lot of things with your major that that you can use? In the future, is it mostly from your internships? I've learned a lot here and there. I didn't start out in bioengineering. I started out in uh, natural resources, economics, and management, and then went on through biological sciences in molecular biology, and then changed over as a junior to bioengineering, and, and now I'm concentrating in both bioprocess engineering and environmental engineering. And... I've got minors in biological sciences, and I'm getting one in design studies, and I just completed my permaculture design certificate through the horticulture department. So it's seemingly scattered variety of things, but all with the same intent. And so I'm interested in studying all those things because they will all be relevant to the settlement of Mars. And the internships that I've been fortunate enough to have I worked here at NC State in the departments of biology and uh, plant biology, and I spent roughly two and a half, three years here doing that, then moved on down to Kennedy Space Center and worked in the advanced life support labs down there and was working in microbiology on uh, a food security project for the new vegetable production unit that will be sent up to the space station in the coming month. And so then the astronauts will be able to grow food in that system. That's so cool. You have a really good resume. <laughs> you probably have really proud parents. That's awesome. So obviously, Mars is in good hands. I'm not worried. But what are these colonists going to do with their time when they're not researching or learning how to live on Mars? They actually have to live on Mars for a lifetime. How are they going to occupy their time? How are they going to relax, work out, listen to music? How is this all going to go down? And what kind of things does a person pack to live on Mars? We're going to go into all of that next week, so make sure to tune in. It's going to be a good one. You all have a great night, and thank you so much for listening. This is Sabah Khan for WKNC. The spring athletic season is now in full swing with several NC State teams in action this week. The baseball team has gotten off to a very good start, going 6-1 in their first seven games. The Pack lost their first game of the season to Canisius, but have not looked back since getting revenge against Canisius the very next day, then beating Elon and North Carolina A&T during the week, and then getting a three-game sweep of Appalachian over the weekend. It has been no surprise the juniors Trey Turner and Brett Austin have led the pack in the batter's box. Turner has a 4.23 average with five RBIs and six stolen bases, while Austin has a 400 average with five RBIs. On the mound, State's dynamic trio of starters made up of All-American Carlos Rodon, Logan Jernigan and Brad Stone have combined to go 3-1 and one in their first seven games. The baseball team will hope to continue their success today against Davidson and then this Friday against Michigan. The men's basketball team has had a difficult few weeks, just barely missing out on upsetting the top-ranked Syracuse Orange and then getting blown out on the road by Clemson. Fortunately, the pack was able to right the ship against Virginia Tech, winning 71-64. to The Syracuse game, which State lost 56-55, was extremely controversial, with many believing that State should have been given an and-one opportunity at the end of the game, but instead were given the ball on the sideline. Warren has been leading the pack in their last few games, scoring 23, 20, and 31 in their last three games, respectively. 
hit the 1,000-point career milestone against Clemson. They are now 17-10 and 10 on the season and are preparing for what is possibly their biggest game of the season tomorrow, a home matchup against rival UNC. The women's basketball team also had a rough week, losing to 17th-ranked UNC and 7th-ranked Duke, 89-82 and 83-70, respectively. Senior Cody Burke has been the pack's best player, scoring 18 against Carolina and a career-high 30 against Duke. Burke once again rose to the occasion against Virginia, hitting a late three-pointer to win the game 68-66. Burke was also recently named a Capital One Academic All-American. The women's basketball team is now 23-5 and and will next face Pittsburgh. The men's tennis team beat in-state foe ECU 7-2 this week, but then lost the 29th-ranked Northwestern 5-2. The loss was only state's second of the year. The doubles tandem of Ian Dempster and Robbie Mudge is now 11-0 on the year, and the team as a whole is 9-2. Their next matchup will be next Thursday against Appalachian State and Winthrop. The women's swimming team has a strong showing at the ACC championships, breaking 15 school records, claiming five medals, and coming in fourth as a team. The pack had five All-ACC performers, Ricky Bonima, Ashlyn Lolitic, Natalie Labonge, Lauren Poli, and Alexia Zevnik. Congratulations to these women and good luck to the men as they start their ACC championships tomorrow. The wrestling team wrestled twice this week, defeating Duke 25-13 in the final ACC duel of the year and then losing to 21st-ranked Northwestern 24-15. The biggest moment of the week came when Nick Gwizdowski defeated the top heavyweight in the nation in overtime. Gwizdowski has been ranked as high as second in the nation at the 285-pound weight class. The win against Duke was Coach Pat Papalizzo's 100th career dual victory. The wrestling team will hit the mats again on March 8th for the ACC Championships at Virginia Tech. That's it for me today, but if you'd like more in-depth analysis, please tune in tomorrow at 7 for Pulse of the Pack right here on WKNC. Here's what's going on at NC State. Tomorrow at 7 p.m., the Craft Center of NC State is gathering an eclectic group of craftspeople to lead an interactive panel discussion. Held in conjunction with the exhibition A View to the Making, the conversation will feature a panel representing various ages, cultures, commitments, and expertise. To make your thoughts known and for more information, visit ncsu.edu crafts. Hosted by NCSU Dining, Thursday is Kick Anything Blue Day. The holiday comes with the instructions to kick anything blue because, well, you know why. Thursday at 4.30 is a speech titled Rawls, Radicals, and Race. Dr. Timothy Hinton of NC State's Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies will talk on the significance of Rawls' original position in the dispute between radicals and liberals as part of the Philosophy Colloquium series. He will concentrate on the question of race. The event will take place in room 331 of Withers Hall. Thursday evening at 7 p.m., Dr. Garcia and the students of the Wind Ensemble will continue their exploration of small group instrumental choirs ranging from flute choir to percussion ensemble. Catch the performance in Titmus Theater in Thompson Hall. Friday at 2 p.m., the Office of Finance and Business will be hosting a farewell retirement reception in honor of Kevin McNaughton in the Coastal Ballroom of Tally Student Union. Coworkers, retirees, and friends are welcome to attend. Friday evening, the College of Design welcomes graduate and celebrity Kat Robichaux. Featured on Eye on the Triangle last fall, Kat showed off her musical talent on the last season of the acclaimed musical reality show The Voice. As a big supporter of the college, she's coming to speak about how her design education has shaped all aspects of her growing career. 
and she'll perform a few of her latest hits. With a Kickstarter campaign in progress to help record her first solo album, Kat is doing everything she can to keep performing and living her dream. Catch her in the Burns Auditorium from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Friday at 7 p.m. is the next in the PMC lecture series titled Music, Conflict, and Social Change in the Congo. Through a discussion of the historical, political, and cultural context surrounding the production of Art on the Frontline, an edgy music video series, this talk addresses the provocative role of music and image in the Congo's current conflict. The event takes place in Thompson Hall's Titmus Theater. Saturday evening at 7, join the Jazz Ensemble and NC State Jazz Combos for a swingin' evening of your favorite classic and modern jazz hits. Catch the performance in Thompson Hall's Titmus Theater. Sunday is a walk for suicide prevention and awareness hosted by the Sigma Pi fraternity. The fourth annual Break the Silence 5K aims to raise awareness about suicide and remember those we have lost. Help the NC State Counseling Center by registering at ncsusigmapi.com run. Sunday afternoon at 4 is a guitar recital by Paul Bowman. He will be trying out some modern works for the classical guitar, followed by a discussion of guitar composition and techniques. For more information, visit ncsu.edu music. This weekend at the Campus Cinema, the movies Gravity and The Hunger Games Catching Fire will be showing. Visit uab.ncsu.edu for times. For more information on these events and more, visit ncsu.edu calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. <laughs>